0: Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Halloween, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with
1: a look at today's top stories. Israel expands its military operations in Gaza.
0: Vladimir Putin calls a security meeting after a violent mob storms a Dagestan airport. The White House unveils action to mitigate AI risk. An Australia-EU free trade deal stalls and now may be years away. China pledges to renew military ties with the U.S. Police probe a deadly bombing of a Jehovah's Witness prayer meeting in India.
1: Emmanuel Macron moves to enshrine abortion in the French Constitution.
0: Colorado will vote on whether the 14th Amendment can disqualify Trump in 2024. Mike Pence calls off his run for U.S. President. And Nikki Haley surges to a second-place tie in the GOP race in an Iowa poll. In our top story, Israel expands an assault into Gaza.
1: Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Times of Israel, CNN, The National, and Guardian. After Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced that the country's war against Hamas was now in the, quote, second stage over the weekend... Israeli troops and tanks continued to push deeper into the territory of Gaza on Monday. Reports suggested that Israeli forces had blocked Gaza's main north-south highway and were advancing on Gaza City from two directions. The Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, said on Monday that it killed dozens of Hamas militants in the attacks, including a number of senior commanders. It added that the assault was supported by drone attacks and airstrikes, of which there were around 600, the IDF said. Meanwhile, Hamas confirmed it was involved in heavy fighting against Israel. The expanded Israeli attacks come as pro-Palestine protests calling for an immediate ceasefire were held in a number of major cities across the world on Saturday. Among them were New York, London, Rome, Istanbul, and Baghdad, as well as a number of other cities across the Middle East. Protests calling for a ceasefire were also held in as many as 20 locations across Israel, including Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, according to reports. Coming as Netanyahu met with the families of Israeli hostages held in Gaza, a number of protesters called on the Israeli Prime Minister to resign, while others demanded that more be done in hostage negotiations. A number of Israeli voices, including Giora Island, a former head of the Israeli National Security Council, as well as the Haaretz newspaper, called on the Israeli government to release roughly 5,000 Palestinians, including Hamas fighters who are held in Israeli prisons in exchange for the estimated 229 hostages held in Gaza. Meanwhile, the Gaza Health Ministry on Monday said that the death toll now passed 8,300 people killed since Israel started launching attacks three weeks ago. Over
0: 1,400 people died in Israel during the initial Hamas attack. Thanks, Eric, for those grim facts. We have a pro-Israel narrative on this story from the Times of Israel. Following the terror attacks in Israel, the country is continuing its legitimate military operations in Gaza as part of its war against Hamas. Israel's military activity has killed dozens of Hamas fighters, including a number of commanders, and has destroyed a number of Hamas weapons and positions. Follow that up with a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Middle East Eye.
1: Israel's unrelenting attacks on Gaza have wiped out whole neighborhoods and killed thousands of civilians. The bombardment is so extensive that rescuers often have to leave dead bodies under the rubble in order to prioritize rescuing those who may be still alive from more recent attacks. A ceasefire is needed now.
0: And from time to time, we have statistics-based predictions from the Metaculous community. We call them nerd narratives. This one says there's a 90% chance That there will be an Israel Hezbollah war by the year 2030. Eric, one thing I'm seeing in social media bubbling up is various comments that people have made about this conflict, but from years in the past. How they're still relevant? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But you gotta be careful if you hear, and this is, you know, if you hear what someone said a few years ago. You might think that they're condoning what may or may not be happening right now, and they're talking about what happened five years ago, but this conflict has been going on for so long. People have been commenting on it for decades. Talking about Mandela effect. Exactly, because people can post something, and it looks like, oh, this was posted yesterday, but it just gets really confusing. Hats off to uh, our editorial team researching this stuff, because you really got to hash through a lot. Right. Right. Putin calls a security meeting after a mob storms Dagestan airport. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, CNN, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday called a meeting of top security and law enforcement officials after hundreds stormed an airport in the Russian region of Dagestan a day earlier. Men from the predominantly Muslim region in Russia's south overran staff at the Makankala-Uyach airport and made their way onto the runway. They then descended on a plane that had recently arrived from Israel. Some carried signs that read, We are against Jewish refugees. Others said, There is no place for child killers in Dagestan. Dagestan's health ministry said that a total of 20 people were injured, two of them critically, adding that the figure includes a number of police officers. The region's interior ministry said that a total of 60 people were detained during the unrest, though the airport was secured late on Sunday evening. Russia's Civil Aviation Authority said flights resumed at 2 o'clock p.m. Monday. According to reports, the riots appear to have been inspired by posts on Telegram, where followers were told that a flight from Tel Aviv would be arriving that evening with refugees from Israel. Other anti-Jewish attacks were also reported in other parts of Dagestan. Dagestan's leader, Supreme Mufti Sheikh Ahmad Afandi, told writers that although he understands their indignation, The issue cannot be resolved this way. He urged Dagestanis to exert maximum patience and calm. In the meantime, the office of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu released a statement on Sunday which said, Israel expects the Russian law enforcement authorities to protect the safety of all Israeli citizens and Jews, wherever they may be, and to act resolutely against the rioters and against the wild incitement directed against Jews and Israelis. Scott, thank you for presenting those facts. Our first
1: spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from CNN. The storming of this Dagestani airport is a clear instance of anti-Semitism that needs to be vehemently condemned and prosecuted by Russian authorities. Attacks of this kind must never be allowed
0: to stand. And TAS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. With the hopes of securing another propaganda victory against Russia, hostile forces from abroad have manipulated news of events in the Middle East in order to instigate people in the Dagestan region to riot. Russia condemns these actions at the airport. The nerds of Metaculus have a nerd narrative
1: saying there's a 5% chance that Israel will impose sanctions on Russia by 2024. Turning our attention back to the United States as the White House unveils AI safety guidelines. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Independent, The Hill, Forbes, and Bloomberg. U.S. President Joe Biden Monday was set to sign an executive order regarding artificial intelligence, or AI safety, to protect consumers, workers, and minority groups from the technology's related risks on Monday. The order, via the Defense Production Act, requires developers to submit the results of technology safety tests to the federal government, while the U.S. Commerce Department will issue guidance concerning labeling and watermarking AI-generated content. The order will further require AI models that pose a risk to national security, economic security, or public health to notify the federal government of its training, while also evaluating how agencies will collect and use personal data as well as commercially available information. The, quote, rigorous standards that will need to be met will come under the supervision of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The agency will aim to ensure that grant applicants protect against the risks of using AI to engineer dangerous biological materials. The White House is also calling on Congress to take legislative action, according to a senior Biden administration official. The order will also call for guidance to landlords, federal benefits programs, and federal contractors to, quote, keep AI algorithms from being used to exacerbate discrimination. This comes just days before U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris is set to attend an AI summit in the U.K. hosted by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. According to Bloomberg government data, the Biden administration has committed
0: $1.6 billion to AI for the 2023 fiscal year. Thanks, Eric. The democratic narrative on this story comes from Wired Magazine. The U.S. government is attempting to keep the commercial aspirations of AI in check while integrating its benefits into the Biden administration's federal agencies. The executive order rightfully acknowledges both the excitement and danger that AI is capable of globally and, if successful, will mark the strongest governmental directive seen so far in the sector. Town Hall gives us a Republican narrative.
1: Biden leading the fight for AI ethics is like a liberal, multinational corporation controlling what election-related information the public is allowed to see. The most powerful aspect of AI is its information control, which the Democrats were lucky enough to have on their side during the 2020 election. If social media platformers were able to sway large swaths of undecided voters in Biden's direction, what do you think this corporate-government partnership
0: will do next as the technology it controls grows stronger? And the nerd narrative from Metaculous. There's a 95% chance there will be an AI Sputnik moment before the year 2050. Free trade negotiations between the EU and Australia stall. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Sydney Morning Herald, Reuters, Politico, CNN, and The Guardian. Australia and the European Union are unlikely to reach a free trade deal for several years after Canberra rejected the EU's latest proposals, according to Australian government ministers. Australia hoped to remove tariffs on its agricultural products, while Europe wanted greater access to Australia's critical minerals. Australian Trade Minister Don Farrell said the two parties held last-chance negotiations in Osaka, Japan, while a meeting of G7 trade ministers took place. However, in a video statement Sunday, Farrell said, Unfortunately, we have not been able to make progress. The two sides have been discussing a free trade agreement since 2018 and have long struggled over access to Australian beef and other products. Australia has maintained it will only agree to a deal that benefits its agricultural sector. Agricultural Minister Murray Watt said the EU hasn't budged from the offer it proposed three months ago. In July, negotiations fell apart after Farrell left Brussels without an agreement. The trade minister said that Australia would either break off negotiations or take a break before resuming talks, after the EU's offer remained roughly the same. Farrell said all talks would be frozen and negotiations may not resume for several years. Meanwhile, EU Trade Chief Valdis Dombrovskis said the bloc made an offer that presented a commercially meaningful agricultural market access offer to Australia, but added that Australia did not engage on the basis of previously identified landing zones. Australian farmers applauded the government's decision to not sign a so-called dud deal that would put Aussie farms at a disadvantage to competitors in New Zealand, Canada, and South America. Last year, the EU signed a trade deal with New Zealand that allowed more beef, lamb cheese and butter into europe scott thanks for laying
1: out those facts narrative a is our first spin it's coming from Euronews. the eu and australia finally seemed destined to reach a free trade agreement after five years of arduous negotiations until the canberra's trade minister came with last-minute demands that sank the deal it's an unfortunate result for all parties involved and the eu tried its best to grant australian farmers competitive access to european markets However, all the hard work from previous negotiations was for naught, and it may take years for talks to resume.
0: The EU did all it could to strike a fair deal, but Australia kept moving the goalposts. And the National Farmers Federation of Australia brings us Narrative B. Kudos to the Australian government for putting Aussie agriculture first in trade negotiations with the EU. Europe was unwilling to put a commercially meaningful offer on the table and it would have put Australian farmers behind their competitors in other countries. While there's often pressure to make important trade agreements, it's more important to look out for national industry and workers, and Australian leaders did just that. Hopefully the EU can return with more fair offers that benefit Australia's fine farmers.
1: China pledges to renew military ties with the United States. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Kyoto News, Financial Times, Taipei Times, Washington Post, South China Morning Post, and Reuters. China's top-ranking military official General Zhang Yuzhia announced that Beijing aims to renew military ties with the U.S. at the three-day Jiangshan Security Forum on Monday amid recent efforts to restore military-to-military military lines of communication ahead of a possible Biden-Z summit. The vice chairman of China's top military body, the Central Military Commission, further stated that Beijing is committed to deepening its strategic ties with Russia and developing a military relationship with the U.S. based on mutual respect and, quote, win-win cooperation. Yet Zhang claimed that some countries stir up turmoil and interfere in regional and other nations' internal affairs to create geopolitical tensions without specifying them. He opened the event in the absence of Li Shang-Fu, who was removed as China's defense minister last week. China's second-ranking military official also addressed tensions over Taiwan, vowing that Beijing will never tolerate the self-governing island to split from the mainland. It was after former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year that China suspended military communication with the U.S. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, who also spoke at the three-day conference, praised the China-Russia ties as, quote, an exemplary model of cooperation, while blaming the West for allegedly attempting to expand the Ukraine war to the Asia-Pacific region, an escalation that he claimed could lead to a direct military confrontation between nuclear powers. The U.S. Department of Defense has sent a delegation led by official Cynthia Zanthi Karas to China's main annual military diplomacy event, which kicked off Sunday. This latest sign of resurgent communication ties comes as China's top diplomat Wang Yi met with U.S. President Joe Biden in Washington last week.
0: Well, Eric, we have some diametrically opposed narratives on this story. Let's start with the anti-China narrative from Voice of America. That China invited the U.S. delegation to the gathering shows that Beijing wants to put military exchanges with Washington back on a solid footing. This is also due to the U.S. diplomatic view that engaging in candid U.S.-China dialogue is crucial for the stability of East Asia and the world. However, significant differences remain between the Chinese Communist Party's foreign policy and American values. PRC propaganda will exploit the delegation's attendance, and it remains to be seen how serious China really is about improving ties. China Daily brings us a pro-China narrative. The U.S.
1: participation in this forum is the latest expression of its interest in improving strategic ties with China. Yet gestures alone will not be enough to put the relations back on track. Washington's interference in China's internal affairs, particularly on the Taiwan issue, its provocations in the South China Sea, and illegal sanctions do not serve this goal. The U.S. must realize that its two-faced tactics are leading to a dead end, and that China will never bow to its coercive policy and claim to hegemony. Washington must follow through with meaningful actions of goodwill.
0: In another nerd narrative from Metaculus. this time they predict a 15% chance there will be a U.S.-China war by the year 2035. A deadly blast in India strikes a Jehovah's Witness prayer meeting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Today on Monorama, ABC News, The New Indian Express, BBC News, and The Wire. Three people have died, with over 50 injured, after three explosions struck a Jehovah's Witness prayer meeting on Sunday in Kochi, a city in the southern Indian state of Kerala. The blasts are believed to have been caused by improvised devices after a man named Dominic Martin confessed to using 50 firecrackers and 8 liters of petrol to set off the explosions. Before surrendering, 50-year-old Martin posted a video on Facebook claiming responsibility and saying, The Jehovah's Witnesses' theology was wrong. Martin said in the video, I took the decision, realizing that this idea is dangerous to the country. The police are now verifying Martin's claims. They have taken another person, Santhos Abraham, into custody after he was found under suspicious circumstances in the area a few hours after the blasts. In 1986, followers of Jehovah's Witnesses were backed by India's Supreme Court, ruling that their children could not be forced to sing the National Anthem in schools. Followers of the movement had argued that singing the anthem would constitute, quote, a form of idolatry and an act of unfaithfulness. The police have warned of strict action against those spreading fake news related to the blasts, incorrectly making a correlation to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Scott, thank
1: you for those facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from the News Minute. Kerala is one of India's most peaceful and socially harmonious states. It has a relatively higher share of Muslim and Christian population than other Indian provinces. An isolated crisis like this must be
0: rationally investigated to clarify the reality of what occurred to the public. And Narrative B comes from the Times of India. This incident is horrific, and the incorrect linkage to the Israel-Hamas conflict speaks to a larger concern that's disturbingly far-reaching across India. There's the possibility that the Middle East conflict could indirectly affect the nation, and all levels of government must work together to prepare for any strains on social cohesion.
1: News coming from France as Macron plans to enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Guardian, Politico, RFI, Le Monde, and DW. President Emmanuel Macron has promised to enshrine women's abortions rights in the French Constitution by 2024 to make them, quote, irreversible. In an online post on Sunday, Macron said his government will submit a draft text to grant abortion constitutional status to France's top administrative court over the coming week. Macron's announcement follows his International Women's Day promise to enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution to send a, quote, universal message of solidarity toward the women whose abortion rights have been violated. According to an EFOP poll conducted last year, 81% of respondents from across the political spectrum in France favor, quote, the constitutionalization of abortion. In France, a constitutional revision requires either a referendum or approval by at least three-fifths of the members of both chambers of parliament united in a, quote, Congress. France decriminalized the termination of a pregnancy in 1975, but nothing guarantees abortion rights. According to official data, up to
0: 234,000 abortions were carried out in the country last year. Thanks, Eric. The Associated Press brings us Narrative A. While abortion in France was legalized in 1975, several laws enacted since then have helped protect women's health and anonymity, as well as improve the conditions to terminate a pregnancy by making the procedure more affordable. However, it's high time abortion rights are better protected under the French Constitution against the backsliding of this issue seen in nations including the U.S. and Poland. Narrative
1: B comes from Crux. Macron's enshrinement of abortion in the French Constitution is concerning, ignores pro-life sentiments, and runs contrary to the pleas of the Vatican. It's vital to push back against ideals that destroy human life. Macron enjoys a frank and open relationship with Pope Francis. Hopefully, the French president will be open to embracing pro-life values going forward.
0: Colorado's Trump ballot ban trial begins. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBC, Reuters, Axios, Forbes, and the Associated Press. Testimony began Monday in Colorado in a lawsuit challenging whether former President Donald Trump should be barred from running for the presidency under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Clause. Plaintiffs are arguing to invoke the 14th Amendment of the Constitution which bars from public office any individual who has taken an oath of office and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. or given comfort to the enemies thereof. Representing a group of Colorado voters attempting to prove Trump violated the 14th Amendment on January 6, 2021, Attorney Eric Olson argued Monday that then-President Trump summoned and organized the mob that marched on the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to stop certification of Democrat Joe Biden's win in the 2020 presidential election. However, Trump's lawyer, Scott Gessler, argued Trump never incited violence and added that ruling against his client based on legal theories that have never been embraced by a state or federal court would set a dangerous precedent. Colorado District Judge Sarah Wallace last week denied multiple motions from Trump's legal team to throw out the suit. This trial is scheduled to take one week. Meanwhile, oral arguments in a similar suit in the Minnesota Supreme Court are scheduled to begin Thursday. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is an
1: anti-Trump narrative coming from The Independent. This case has been brought to preserve democracy for those who believe in it and want to uphold it. While trying to run for president, Trump is facing state and federal criminal charges over his role in the conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. He should not be allowed to hold public office again, and Colorado is leading the way.
0: Pro-Trump narrative comes from Daily Mail. The Colorado plaintiffs are making up their own definition of insurrection in order to keep Trump off the ballot. This is a pathetic, unconstitutional move to silence supporters of a candidate Democrats know they have little hope of beating in a fair and free election. If this suit isn't thrown out altogether, Trump should win the case hands down in court. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative as well.
1: They say there's a 3% chance that on Election Day 2024, Donald Trump will be a third-party candidate for the U.S. presidential election. More political news as Mike Pence drops out of the 2024 presidential race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Daily Mail, Associated Press, Financial Times, BBC News, and Reuters. Former Vice President Mike Pence withdrew from the 2024 Republican Party presidential nomination race on Saturday, stating, "This is not my time." To the Republican Jewish Coalition in Las Vegas, Pence said he had intended to run for president because he believed the U.S. "quote is in a lot of trouble." But after much prayer and deliberation, he had decided to suspend his campaign. In withdrawing from the presidential race, Pence called on Americans to choose a leader that will lead the U.S. with civility and back to those time-honored principles that have always made America strong and prosperous and free. Pence's run reportedly failed to take off due to a shortage of support and funds. Pence had received 3.8% support in the Republican primary race and raised less than $5 million between July and September. Pence's campaign recently reported it owed 621000 in debt while holding $1.2 million in savings. Pence stated that while he was pulling out of his campaign, he would, quote, never leave the fight for conservative values. Previously, Pence had criticized former President Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th, 2021 Capitol Hill riots and alleged attempt to overturn the 2020 election results.
0: Well, we have political narratives on this story. Eric, let's start with the Democratic narrative from The New York Times. Mike Pence, a key witness for federal prosecutors against Donald Trump and his trial about the events surrounding January 6, 2021, has paid the price for not bending the knee to Donald Trump time and again. His decision to drop out of the 2024 presidential race underscores how tricky the path is to topple the former president, who is currently dominating the GOP polling. Pence was always a non-starter in the GOP race, and now the field of non-Trumpers shrinks even more.
1: Breitbart gives us a pro-Trump narrative. With Trump polling so strongly in the face of weaponized legal action against him, Pence's hopes of rebooting his career were doomed. Despite years of experience in Washington, he struggled to gain traction or raise money to fund his anemic campaign as Republican voters abandoned him. Pence never had a chance against the former president, who has built one of the biggest primary leads in U.S. electoral history
0: and the nerd narrative from metaculus they predict a 40% chance that Trump will win if the 2024 U.S. presidential election is Trump versus Biden, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Uh, you and Pence used to be golfing buddies, didn't you? Didn't you guys play golf together? Does he still have that 24 handicap? Yeah, he's gotten better. I mean, he, I mean, honestly, he's been busy the past few years, and I, I think, honestly, his desire to shave a few strokes to get a chance against me probably was why he took his eye off the ball this race. That's why he's dropping out. Yeah, but. See- I always picked you to be the sandbagger. I may have taught him everything he knows, but I didn't teach him everything that I know. You understand? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Haley surges to a second-place tie in Iowa's GOP poll. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Axios, NBC, Reuters, The Hill, Politico, and U.S. News & World Report. According to an NBC News Des Moines Register MediaCom poll, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is now tied for second in polling at the party's Iowa caucus with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. While October's polling sees both DeSantis and Haley sitting at 16%, a decrease of 3%, and an increase of 10%, respectively, compared to a poll conducted in August, former President Donald Trump remains the first choice candidate by likely Iowa caucus goers, with a commanding 43%. Trump's gap to second place now sits at 27 percent, a four-point increase from August. Following Haley and DeSantis sits Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, with seven percent, while former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy both received four percent. The poll also found that 27 percent saw DeSantis as their second choice, with 25 percent actively considering the Florida governor. While 17% saw Haley as their alternative candidate, 41% of total survey responders claimed their mind was made up on their first choice candidate. Data was taken before former Vice President Mike Pence announced he was to pull out of the presidential race. Pence had dropped from 6% to 2% between August and October. The data was collected from 404 likely Iowa caucus attendees between October 22nd and 26th, with a margin for error of 4.9%.
1: Thank you, Scott. Politico gives us an anti-Trump narrative. In the underdog race to pose a credible, if unlikely, bid to beat Trump to the Republican nomination, it seems that Haley has taken the mantle. While other GOP nominees have had their moments in the headlines, it's Haley who has slowly but surely secured a strong base with voters after two commendable debate appearances. Her surge in Iowa is notable and
0: doesn't even reflect the news that Mike Pence has dropped out. Trump should take note. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from The Last Refuge. Wall Street Republicans are only backing Haley as DeSantis's polling numbers have embarrassingly diminished. However, as the data shows, Trump's followers are not sheep, and the candidacy appears to be all but secured. Nikki Haley may be working the never-Trumper donor circuit, but the former president is locking the GOP nomination down in historic fashion.
1: Our final nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community says there's a 2% chance that Nikki Haley will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Halloween, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: Find out more at Verity.News, and you can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.